Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. In this episode, I will be speaking with acclaimed designer and educator, Nader Tarani. We will be discussing the intricate relationship between material culture and tectonic innovation, and Nader will elaborate on the ways that his work seeks to disrupt the construction industry by bridging the gap between the world of ideas and the world of making. Through this conversation, I hope to share with you the artistry and ingenuity behind his architectural and urban design work, and the ways in which these projects shape our physical environment and in turn, the quality of our lives. But before beginning this conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Nader Tarani is the principal of NADA, an architectural and urban design practice based in Boston. He's also the former dean of the Irwin S. Channon School of Architecture of the Cooper Union in New York, and was previously a professor of architecture at MIT, where he served as the head of the department from 2010 to 2014. Nader received a bachelor's in fine arts and a bachelor's of architecture from the Rhode Island School of Design and continued his studies at the AA in London, where he attended a postgraduate program in history and theory. Upon his return to the U.S., Nader received a Master's of Architecture in Urban Design from the Harvard Graduate School of Design, which is actually where we, we met. Uh, Nader has taught at too many schools for me to mention here, and his work has been recognized with numerous notable awards, including an unprecedented 18 Progressive Architecture Awards. And his firm, Nada, has been consistently ranked as a top design firm in Architect Magazine's top 50 U.S. firms list. For his contributions to architecture as an art, Nader is the recipient of the 2020 Arnold W. Bruner Memorial Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, to which he was also elected as a member in 2021. This appointment is the highest form of recognition of artistic merit in the United States. Nader, thank you for joining On Cities. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. Good morning, Karen. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and I would never have imagined being on the radio with you, but here we are. <laughs> Neither would I, but I'm going to enjoy the ride. Nader, you were born in England, but raised in Pakistan, South Africa, Iran, and Italy. These are such different cultures and contexts. How did this itinerant upbringing influence your thoughts about the world? I was the result of a diplomatic background. And so every two to four years, 
uh, we were called on to pack up our bags and go to a new country. So in many ways, it was a privileged upbringing, uh, allowing us access to cultures and languages and contexts that we would not normally have access to. But in a strange way, uh, as worldly as we were, my sister and I, uh, as uh, lacking as we were in our own background uh, in Iran. So it's it was a mixed bag, basically. Uh, we had incredible opportunities, particularly in my case in South Africa, when I came into consciousness, I would say. Uh, and um, And at the same time, returning back to Iran eventually, knowing very little about my own background and uh, and my own language, but it was extraordinary as an upbringing. How old were you when you were in South Africa? Uh, I went there when I was seven and returned when I was eleven. And what was it that impressed you about that place? Well, this was the South Africa of apartheid, uh, and so landing there and being confronted immediately with. Uh, questions of inequity and separation uh, was vivid and stark from the very first moment, and architectural, I should say, because upon landing, uh, the first thing I was confronted with was the embassy, the house, uh, and uh, understanding the spatial ecology of that house, uh, where uh, the staff lived and where we lived, um, how the gardens were taken care of, uh, it was immediate, an immediate shock uh, about the state of those who have and have not. And that was day one. Clearly, it's stayed with you, um, even the way that you describe it now so many years later. Um, I'm sure that we'll continue to talk about how those early influences may have affected um, some of the work that we're going to de- be discussing today. Um, I was curious, Nadir, um, did you always know that you wanted to be an architect? I don't think so. Um, You know very little about what you want to become. I suppose I wanted to be a tennis player when I was at that age or something else. I was impressed by many other things. But suffice it to say that I do remember vividly uh, going to construction sites Uh, in Johannesburg, as well as in uh, Upper Tehran. Uh, Both cities were developing at that time and uh, looking at the foundations of new houses, almost as if they were archaeological ruins in reverse, I suppose. And trying to decode them was part of a fascination I had as a, a younger child. But I'm sure it was somehow sparked on by other influences. An older cousin of mine was an artist at the time, uh, was teaching me how to draw when I was only seven, eight years old. And eventually another uh, cousin of mine who uh, became an architect went to RISD and effectively paved the path for me uh, going to the same school. Well, maybe that answer can segue into... um my my next question, because your longstanding involvement in academia has influenced countless of inspiring architects. 
And yet I heard you describe yourself in a recent keynote address as an accidental academic, which surprised me given your longstanding and notable um, career in academia. So Nadir, why, why did you describe yourself this way? Uh, r- really, it goes back to your question about the itinerant uh, background. I mean, my sister and I knew everything about everything, but we had um, uh, very bad records and grades, and we were terrible at school, both of us. Uh, and both of us somehow ended in academia in one way or another, uh, I, I would say as overcompensation or as uh, as a kind of second chance to go back to school again. Um, so that's what RISD represented to me after uh, a relatively mediocre uh, uh, sort of uh, engagement with uh, high school and, and uh, middle school college became an opportunity to really delve deep into work. And that's when I met Rodolfo Machado, amongst others, who, I don't know, they they didn't only make teaching exciting, they made it glamorous, they made it something to look forward to. And we imagined, well, what does it mean to have to produce new forms of knowledge? And so, so... I, I would never have imagined uh, stepping into teaching, but uh, it, it was something that was constructed for us in some ways, uh, aspirationally. Do you, do you think that that early educational experience uh, was was due, or maybe the negative one was due because those um, environments didn't ignite curiosity? Um, or was it that you... You know, I'm curious um, because clearly you are, from my experiences with you, inquisitive and curious and eager to learn about so many things. Um, so, what do you think it was about that? No, early? no, 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 no. They inspired infinite curiosity. What they didn't allow for was continuity and depth. When you're in a place for only two to four years, you just when you're uh, getting into a pattern, into a, a set of common rituals. You're uh, you're torn away from that context and put into a new one. So it's it's that lack of continuity, it's that lack of foundation that produces that. So in that sense, uh, there was no lack of curiosity. There was simply uh, the the absence of a red thread that brought you you know from one culture to the other. Mm. So maybe uh, landing at RISD was uh, probably your longest stint in one place uh, up until that point, perhaps? Uh, I would say yes, that's true. Yeah, interesting. Um, Well, you more than most understand the vital role that educators play in our lives. So I think you alluded earlier to Rodolfo Matado, um, which is... uh, was one of your teachers and, and also one of mine. Um, but I was curious, who would you say have been your greatest teachers and what lessons did you learn from them? It varies. I mean, uh, RISD uh, you know, was defined by Rodolfo because he was a very uh, pointed figure and a strong leader. And he, 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 would, he taught us what constitutes an idea to begin with. But uh, that doesn't mean everybody agreed with him. There were other 
uh, many interesting figures like Judy Wallen, K. Michael Hayes, and many others who triangulated and made for a strong debate. You know, after RISD, I had the great fortune of learning under Mika Bandini uh, at the AA. She effectively taught me how to read and think in a critical way outside of architecture. And then when I returned back uh, to the States uh, at the GST, uh, Rodolfo's partner, Jorge Silvetti, he taught me not only how to play with the rules, but, but to break them. Uh, in my younger years as a teacher, uh, Gabriel Feld, he taught me how to be a teacher uh, rather than just an architect, uh, because teaching involves a whole different uh, level of engagement with, you know, the students who often know much more than you do. But I think it was the atmosphere at RISD that was kind of extraordinary. Remember, your own dean. Uh, El Khouri was there at the time, Jonathan Schechter, Liz Ranieri, a whole bunch of people uh, that produced that environment for us. Um, the dean of, at MIT, Hashem Sarkis, who, uh, who used to be the dean at the Daniels faculty, Richard Summer, Lauren Kogod, Michael Molson. There are many names that come to mind that produced the particular synergies at a very early age. And they were students, not teachers, but they were leading debates that uh, made us all want to go into academia. Uh, and there's almost none of those names that didn't go on to academia. Yeah, not only did they um, go on to academia, most of them went on to lead schools of architecture. So um, I think that you provide a kind of glimpse into a special moment um, at RISD and institutions are like individuals, you know, they grow, they change, they evolve, and they have moments um, that are particularly meaningful. So I think you were part of a chapter at RISD that I would say was quite special. Um, but I think one of the things, you know, in in reading about you for this interview and looking a, a little closer um, at your work and your education, your background, um, I believe you have a very rich and varied, not only background, but education. I mean, you're educated in art, in architecture, in history, in theory, and in urban design. And then, of course, you know, you your own work now delves into this question of fabrication and construction. Um, I think it's one of the reasons um, that you are um, such a, a, a noted academic and educator as well, um, because of that breadth of curiosity and interest. So, I'm curious, given that context, how would you describe the role of contemporary architecture in the making of cities, which is really at the heart of what um, this show is about? It's a difficult question, depending on how you interpret it. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the role of architecture as objects has become proliferated through platforms like Pinterest and um, other such Instagrams, uh, which tends to reinforce their status as objects. But on the other hand, um, the mere scale and speed at which cities are built uh, is unprecedented. 
and that buildings often now serve as pieces of urbanism, not as objects, is a demonstration of the changing status of the city. Remember that uh, sometimes in the old days, uh, the Duomo, for instance, took over 150, 200 years to build. Now a city like Shenzhen uh, goes from two, 2 million to 20 million in less than two decades. So there's a shift in status that revolves around the question of scale and speed. So understanding the innate urbanism of buildings, but also understanding architecture as an equation of systems and frameworks uh, is probably uh, two sides of the same coin to stop thinking of architecture as uh, a series of uh, disinterested objects in a landscape, but rather as part of a larger system that speaks to itself or speaks to the city, I should say. Um, I think this is the, the shift that uh, I made as I went from architecture to urban design, but it's also a shift that we're all experiencing after our own education as a, as a generation of people, as we see the rise of cities uh, accumulating at an unprecedented scale and speed over the past two or three decades. And do you think that architectural education is, um, is responding to this? Um... It is, it's trying to, but there are phenomena uh, in urbanism uh, that, let's say, can't be captured by conventional techniques <clears throat> of analyzing form, because the kind of phenomena that we're capture capturing now are regional, sometimes global. They're intercontinental. So if you begin to imagine the flows uh, of people through migration, uh, or the flows of toxic waste across the Pacific, these deal with questions of urbanism, but they, they're dealing with it at a planetary scale. And I'm not sure that all programs in urbanism have the capacity to, to address that, but they do present, there are, there are new, let's say, devices. Uh, there are new means and methods of acquiring that knowledge just because that data is now uh, being calculated and tracked. Uh, so it's a very different field than when you and I went to school. Yeah, I asked that just because recently I was looking at a number of curriculums uh, across the U.S. in schools of architecture, and I was still struck by um, how object-focused the curriculum, uh, many curricula, or I don't know if I said that correctly. Curricula. <laughs> curricula. Uh, are and um, I do think that what you speak about is something that um, we need to kind of um, uh, face readily face in schools of architecture and perhaps not see the schism between architecture and urban design, but really see in in, in many cases um, the kind of interrelationship between the two. So I think maybe we could talk more about this by turning really to your own work. 
discussing um, your projects um, specifically. And Nader, you're currently working with the Metropolitan Museum of Art to lead the museum into the future as about a quarter, I understand, of its extensive network of galleries is being renewed. I've heard you describe the Met um, in recent lectures as a piece Mm. of urbanism. Um, So can you tell our listeners how a building can be defined this way and maybe briefly describe how you're intervening within the existing historical context of gallery spaces? For sure. I mean, as a clarification, we are not responsible for uh, that quarter that you described. We're responsible only for about 15,000, 20,000 square feet of it, which is quite small. But the reason we think of the Met as a piece of urbanism is because the Met itself uh, isn't a building. It's some dozens of buildings that have been built over the past century and a half. And each of those buildings uh, constitute different technologies, different styles, eras, materials, And the complex as a totality constitutes, if you like, a small city of sorts once connected to each other. So here, maybe think of it this way, as the inverse of Diocletian's palace, what is modern day split. Uh, Diocletian's palace was a building so large, a palace so large that it constitutes an urbanism onto itself. until, of course, it was invaded. I think it was in the 7th century or so. And its separate wings, its buildings, its segments were appropriated by refugees in the far-off hills and then became, de facto, a city. Uh, In our case, because of the various wings, because the various wings are not really accessible uh, because they were built at different times, it produced some dead ends here and there. So trying to give accessibility to all of its parts has become an opportunity to think about the urban connections across the various wings. And what you may characterize as connecting plazas and courts to streets and alleyways. So it's important to note that where the ancient Near East and Cypriot wings are today are just to the south of the Great Hall where you enter the museum, And to its west is the Rodin Corridor, what is called the Gerald Cantor Sculpture Gallery. And then to its south uh, are the galleries for the art of the Arab lands, uh, Turkey, Iran, Central Asia, uh, and later South Asia, uh, what used to be called the Islamic galleries. There are significant cultural uh, connections between the uh, the collections that we're working on and these various other wings. So not only geographically are we making important urban links to them, but we're making thematic links to them at the same time. Uh, In effect, I would say the Met is like a Mats building, but de facto again. Uh, But it has the kind of variation and surprise that a city conventionally enjoys, less systematic and less predictable uh, as a mat building would be. But I mean, I when I think of the Met, I think of the Escorial uh, outside of uh, Madrid. I think of Split, Diocletian's Palace, and various other examples where a building no longer can be thought of as 
uh, operating in its own autonomy. Uh, and this is a great opportunity to work on a very small project with a large uh, urban Im imagination. Yeah, in, in hearing you describe the project, I think one of the intentions was to sort of rectify some of these dead ends and make visual connections between galleries that don't exist, which which we see as devices that is that are oftentimes used in the design of cities. So I think you use kind of highlight parallels between, again, cities and buildings, which may not be immediately apparent for certainly many of our listeners or maybe even, you know, students of architecture that may be listening to this episode. Um, well, sure. So I mean, there are ghosts of Camilo Cité and Lynch uh, in our background thinking about uh, the visuality of the, the kind of corridors and uh, landmarks that are within the Met, even though it's an interior, it's still defined by points and lines and edges and and monuments, if you will. Exactly. And for those that might not be familiar with Camilo Cite or Kevin Lynch and and who are listening, these are all important, you know, writers who have um, written about um, not only architecture but urbanism specifically. Um, so I would highly recommend that you go out and you know, look at them if you haven't. But um, I think we're coming to the middle of the conversation. So we're going to take a quick break. But when we return, I'm going to continue my conversation with Nader Tarani about his work and the ways that he is disrupting the construction industry by bridging the world of ideas with the world of making. Do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. I'm continuing my conversation with Nader Tarani, and we're going to delve a little bit deeper into his architectural and urban design projects. Uh, Nader, much of your own work uh, is concerned with the problem of fabrication. This is certainly the case for your current office, Nada, but it can be argued that it's been present in your work as far back as the founding of Office Da which is a firm that, as I understand it, you founded with our longtime friend and colleague, Rodolphe El Khoury, um, and to which you were later joined by Monica mm-hmm. Ponce de Leon. Um, today, NADA is structured with its own internal fabrication lab, where you explore and question contemporary means and methods of construction. Nader, why would you say this is um, so important to you and really so central to your work? Look, I think we have to put a little bit of background in this to uh, give it some flesh and body. Uh, In our early career, we had no experience in other offices. So we set out to build without really knowing the basics of project management, construction details, and professional protocols. So our operational model at that time was rooted in overcompensation. We had to basically do more on each project to demonstrate their plausibility. Now, in the context of our first three projects, the MoMA installation, which was all digitally conceived, the Northeastern University Spiritual Life Center and Mantra Lounge, all of these were relatively small projects. We learned critical lessons about our agency with respect to means and methods. And specifically, it revolved around the idea that according to legal mandates, that architects can only gain control over design intent and yet not the means and methods, which was reserved only for contractors and builders. We didn't know that before that fact. So by addressing not only the what of design, but the how of design in all of those three projects, we ended up determining a way of thinking about architecture through their mean, through the specific way of fabrication, and by doing that, controlling the budget, controlling the outcome, and in some cases, even building all or portions of them. So in the context of Mantra, we built the entire lounge. In the context of Northeastern University, we built one dome as a demonstration to the contractors, with the contractors building the other two domes. In the context of the MoMA installation, we conceptualize something uh, in a la- paper laser laser cut model 
that was then collaborated on with Milgo Bufkin to scale it up um, to to steel at a quarter of an inch. So there were kind of extraordinary things. But in short, NADLAB is a platform that goes beyond the fabrication of traditional models in an uh, architectural firm setting. And we do mock-ups. We collaborate with various trades from metal to, to wood. And in many cases, we fabricate uh, small-scale projects ourselves. In some of the most politically charged moments, we've done mock-ups, like the ceiling uh, for the Daniels faculty, where we were able to demonstrate the buildability of an idea of a ruled surface, a developable surface, at a price point that it was a million dollars less than what the contractors had alleged. And that was a huge win because, you know, that project is really all about the studio space, a space that spans 120 feet, uh, that is guided by the hydrological control of all of its water, the roof water, coming into cisterns on either side of the site, and is fueled by the daylight uh, of the studio. The idea that a single surface may do all of these three things was really the result of that mock-up. So we continue to enjoy NADLAB as an engine uh, that not only fuels our curiosity, as you put it, but uh, is able to speculate and test out things that uh, often won't be commissioned for or won't be paid for by others. So how is it paid for? I mean, essentially, business models vary, but I'm saying if you have uh, an overhead and profit that gives you 25% uh, to play with, even if you put 5% of that into uh, NADLAB, you're already working on something. But between things like the Venice Biennale or certain exhibitions, we invest in uh, that space to do things. But on other things, we actually make profit from it. So when the RISD dorms came about, we put a bid on all of the FF&E, all of the furniture, and we won it in a competitive bid against others, but we also got to customize certain things that other people would not have been able to do. And we basically uh, uh, took the excess CLT that was uh, a central part of that project and like cross laminated uh, timbers, right? The exactly. cross lamin- And okay. we we basically used it, reused it as a way of not um, throwing out any uh, materials of that project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems it's a very, it's a space that um, really weaves together research, right, and questions that sometimes you want to answer, even if one doesn't have a client. Um, but it's also I find your answer compelling, particularly for example, the one that you mentioned about the Daniels faculty, because I think in that instance, um, you 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 knew how to put that element of the building together. Um, but because it was unconventional, it was probably heavily overpriced, right? And not questions in large part, um, because there was no precedent, right? But by building it, sorry, did you want to, to say be f- Yeah, I said, to be fair, uh, the precedence was out there and clear. People like Felix Candela 
had built many shell structures in, in Mexico City uh, mid-century. And the problem with that, of course, is that A, Candela had the benefit of his uh, brother as a builder, uh, making it uh, sort of, and, and cheap labor at that time, all of which fell apart when unions came to, to play on Mexico City. But the reality is also that a concrete construction can be said to uh, entail building two buildings. First, the, the framework, the formwork for the concrete. Second, the building itself. And then third, having to dismantle the formwork. So in places that involve uh, affordable labor, concrete becomes um, a huge possibility. In our case, we didn't have that. So we had to conceptualize that in steel. And the way we did that was to say, okay, what if we go to steel and make it easily erectable, and then instead of concrete, use plaster, but we used a radiant panel instead to be able to make it an environmental surface, meaning that the, while the heating would be done in the concrete floor, the idea that the cooling could be done through the radiant uh, panel above. So these ideas are infused also by the changing politics of construction over decades. So let's say there are precedents for these, but they don't apply because uh, we're dealing with shifting economies and shifting times. Yeah, and also a, a global practice as uh, different than, let's say, Candela's, which was largely regional, um, and working in one material with a kind of similar set of builders. I would imagine that, I mean, I don't right. know, but you probably rarely work with the same builders, so you don't necessarily build momentum because you're working all around the globe. Um, so different set of challenges, indeed. Um, I mean, it can be said that the work of your firm, though, is shaping the world of architecture by creating the buildings in which future generations of architects are being trained. You've designed the Hinman Research Building Studio at Georgia Tech with that stunning suspended bridge, the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne, and then, of course, the Daniels Faculty of Architecture at the University of Toronto. Um, Nadir, are there any underlying spatial experiences that unite these varied works? Look, these three schools are fundamentally different, culturally, uh, programmatically. And the only thing that really unites them is that they're all schools of architecture and design in different ways. But there are things that unite them. Um, the, um, the, the crib at the Hinman building, the suspended balcony, uh, is one iteration of something that we did differently uh, in the Melbourne School of Design. In the context of the Hinman building, we repurposed a gantry crane to perform new duties by suspending a studio in the middle of the space so that no structure would hit the ground and maintain the flexibility of that ground. That exact same principle was used for MSD to suspend three dedicated studios in the tower that does not touch the ground in Melbourne, allowing for a vertical studio rather than horizontal in that space. So that's a very specific spatial affinity that goes from one project to another. But I would say more than anything else, these 
three buildings are guided by a very predictable phenomena that you can relate to. And that's the idea that when you do a pedagogical building for an audience of some 500 to 2,000 students of architecture with a faculty that is as erudite as you would ever hope to be, what you're really building for is an audience of exemplary critics. So invariably, the building becomes a testbed for the failures and misgivings of a building, but also its successes. So a pedagogical building is not only a space for learning, but it's also a didactic instrument. Every detail in that building is a demonstration of something either exemplary or quite flawed. And so our our concept of the catalytic detail is precisely that. The, the idea that details aren't incidental things that happen in buildings because they look beautiful, but rather intelligent telltale moments that become systemic and uh, pedagogical in the way that they make students and faculty think about the environment at large, even outside of the building that you're occupying. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, what was it that you called the sort of consummate critics? I can imagine what it might be like, you know, to be building for a faculty of architecture, let alone, you know, a student body. But I think that, you know, your, your interest in the educational buildings hasn't remained at the scale of the building, um, but has also recently expanded beyond the architectural scale to include campus master plans in their totality or at least in sections. Um, at these scales, though, questions of materiality could be said, um, I'd be interested in, in hearing what you would think about this, to be secondary, with larger planning considerations becoming a more central or primary focus. So, Nadir, why are you interested in taking on this scale of work? And perhaps can you share with us your recent project, which I believe is still in the kind of competition phase for the Anatolia College Campus Plan? Right. I mean, first, a gentle reminder that uh, both RISD and Harvard were, while focused on architecture, primarily uh, rooted in a commitment to the city. Uh, RISD was an architecture program, but the role of the city was uh, something that was reminded to us uh, on every project, in every crit, and Rodolfo Machado was very much an urbanist at heart. Uh, later, my master's program was uh, was really rooted in urban design, something that for many years I did not have the luxury of practicing and only recently have uh, been able to sort of add projects to the roster that takes on the scale. But I think that there are uh, some significant le- lessons to be learned about this. Uh, one has to do with even the nomenclatures of terminology, uh, the notion of a master plan as being dictated by somebody who has a vision uh, from top down, uh, the, the, the allegory of uh, Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs uh, as a way of thinking about the, the misgivings of you know, large-scale pl- plans is something that's still alive with us today. And it revolves around our uh, the myth of control, the idea that design 
is all about control in these scales of projects actually revolves around in one's capacity to uh, collaborate, to absorb uh, others, including others in the design process and learning from others and in being strategic about one's own talents. And, And this is more or less uh, the the shift, the mental shift we've we've had to make from going to architecture to urban design, whereas one is about control and Gesamtkunstwerk on the one side, the other is about sharing, including collaborating, and um, and engaging community. So, you know, I would say that you know projects such as I don't know, Lincoln Center, uh, RISD, Turkey Bend, are as much about uh, building community equity and inclusion as they are about anything else because they are basically absorbing the community into the design process um, and then inserting ourselves strategically along the way to build a common denominator between the different and sometimes warring voices. In the context of Anatolia College, we had a different, slightly different mission. Uh, that is a an institution that is defined by, you know, three different campuses, you know, one for elementary school, the other one for middle school, another one for high school, and a and, a, and an emerging strength of a college there. So the idea of creating infrastructures that are intergenerational on the one hand, maintaining the autonomy of campuses where relevant, but sharing uh, certain facilities where strategic is part of that mission. And so knowing also the difference between buildings versus infrastructures means that you're investing in the future sustainability of the campus by focusing on infrastructure rather than buildings, knowing fully well that in an interdisciplinary environment, often the focus on one discipline tends to be heightened because of certain cultural or generational urgencies, but also diminishes after 10, 20, 30 years, whereas other disciplines uh, take, uh, take root. So this is a a college right now that is investing in its flexibility for the future. But uh, Nadir, in listening to you describe it, you know, again, there's a certain degree of, you know, there's a lot of listening that has to take place, you know, when you're doing a master plan. It's not to say that that doesn't occur when you're doing a building. More and more, I've realized as a practitioner how much, you know, sort of psychology of building, the listening to the client is so important. Um, but still, at one point, there has to be uh, an individual or a group, you know, with a certain degree of authority. And I say authority because you've been educated in uh, a discipline, you know, you've had more than what nearly 30 years of experience that has to somehow take that information and then present it in a coherent manner, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, 
you know, I just was curious because when when you made the reference to master plan, and maybe I understood this, you know, and my understanding was different than what you intended, has a kind of negative connotation because it's meant to, you know, be like the voice of one author. But could a master plan couldn't couldn't it simply be the result of this kind of rich listening exercise, and then that final version, of course, is authored by Nada in this particular case, but through a kind of extensive community participation. Um, uh, or- look, the the politics of language uh, are out there in in full exposure in this day and age. So, but without getting into the the details of um, uh, of words, I'll, I'll just say that taking the master out of the master plan is 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 really I'm quoting somebody uh, when I say that and not authoring it myself. I just know that it is a polemical charge to begin to find the right terminology for the processes that we undertake. But from a uh, from the perspective of simply personal experience, we learned at a very younger age, when we were doing the Northeastern University Spiritual Life Center, a very small project, by the way, an interior, that how you engage with others' voices is almost more strategic than the project details themselves. So, for instance, in the Northeastern University Chapel, what was called at, the, at that time, there it was a multi-denominational chapel. What we didn't understand is that by that, they meant people of different Christian faith groups who were excluded in that were people of the Jewish faith, Islamic faith, Buddhist faith, and many others. And we were charged to not only redesign it, but in redesigning it, include the different faith groups, which involve meetings with a dozen different faith groups as a prerequisite or any design that we did. What we learned out of that process was that there were, oddly enough, many shared affinities between these different religions, which are abstract and uh, non-iconographic, but they have to do with the opportunity of architecture transcending the terms of everyday construction through light and through affect. But when the specific rituals come into play and the attributes that activate that space, whether that is through a minbar or through a cross or a pulpit, that these are infrastructures that can be stored offsite and be brought into play only when those uh, uh, events and rituals are being undertaken. But we, the only way we could have come to this uh, result or this understanding was by listening and representing to them what we'd learned from them. And so what we learned is that there are things that are mutually exclusive and other things that are fundamentally shared. And simply by making a flexible space that is specific in its architectural qualities, but very flexible in the attributes that we bring to it, we could make for a very inclusive space. That becomes a very good way of transitioning to the larger scale of urban design, strategic plans, master plans, whatever you call it. They involve um, defining or redefining flexibility in both things that are 
kinetic, transformable, and usable by many publics, but also spaces that are so specific in their architectural attributes, in their material attributes, that they uh, allow for very specific activities uh, for those who would otherwise be excluded if they were not there. Nadir, we're, we're coming to the end, the last couple minutes of the interview, but I did at least want to ask you about another, uh, I would say, complex planning project that you're working on, which is the Lincoln Center planning process. Um, can you, in about a minute, <laughs> tell us just a little bit about the work you're doing on that project? An amazing process. Uh, the Lincoln Center did a large master plan some 15, 20 years ago that focused on the east uh, side of the campus, which is where the plaza is and where uh, it enjoys a front. Uh, but to the detriment of the campus at large, at no point was the western edge addressed. The problem, the challenges of the western edge is that uh, it has a retaining wall of about, of about 6 to 20 feet just because of the natural topography, and it's faced with um, a housing project, which is the result of you know, urban renewal uh, during that epoch. So part of our challenge was to create a new front and uh, ensure that uh, the communities of what was once the San Juan Hill uh, community be included uh, in this idea of a campus that expands the footprint uh, of what Lincoln Center has to offer to its more diverse communities. So in, in short, it's a project about inclusivity. Mm. So I'm sure there'll be much more on that um, in future presentations, but Nader, to close, I'm asking all my guests, what is their favorite city and why? What's your favorite city and why, Nader? I don't know what is my favorite city, but I can tell you that the Istanbul of 1983 was absolutely surreal for me, uh, uh, medieval and something that was alien to the modern eye. And yet there were industrial artifacts transporting us uh, all around the city, uh, public transportations that none of us would have seen anywhere in the West. So it was this strange uh, anachronism of time, both modern and medieval, that uh, was captured in that moment of that visit, which no longer exists today. So uh, I, would, I would take you to these moments of my upbringing, the Istanbul of 1983. Oh, and I would like to dwell there a little bit longer with you, but that will be for our next conversation, Nader. Nader, thank you. Thank you for your generosity of spirit for your work as both an educator and an extraordinary designer in the making of objects and cities. Um, next week, I will be joined by Lorinda Sphere, the founder and principal of Arquitectonica. Um, I, if you enjoyed this conversation, please connect to us on the On Cities podcast or listen to all previous episodes on Spotify or Apple iTunes. Once again, thank you, Nader, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 